Welcome back to the story of I'm Reagan Snyder, and this is the story of Charles Manson, part four. Well, my friends, I could not be happier to say that this is the final part of this Charles Manson series. And you know what? <clears throat> it's been real. It's been fun. But I don't ever want to talk about Charles Manson ever again. At the end of my last episode, we talked about Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate moving into the house on CLO and Terry Melcher, who had stood Charlie up at the ranch to come and listen to his music and have him audition. He called and said, okay, I'm going to come. And Charlie, Charlie was like, yes, this is it. I am a shoe in This is it. I am finally going to be famous. So Terry Melcher did follow through. He did come. He listened to Charlie's songs. And it was this whole production. There's Charlie with his guitar. And he's singing. And then his girls are all dancing and stripping. And some of them had tambourines and they're knocking wood together to make some kind of beat to go with his guitar and it was just like this whole production they're dancing and swaying and I'm sure (laughs) Terry I can imagine how how he must have reacted like he seems like a pretty polite business oriented guy from from what I've read about him And so I can imagine the look on his face, like the eyebrows are going up a little bit, but he's sitting there and he's sitting kind of tense, straight up, sitting there on the couch or wherever they put him and just kind of nodding and smiling a little bit at this whole thing. Well, after however many songs, Charlie decided that it was time for a break and he decided that he was going to lay the charm on Terry and he was going to pull him into this very philosophical conversation And this worked with some people. It worked with a lot of people. He had a whole following, but it didn't work with everybody. And Terry was not one of those people that it worked with. He was not interested. He was there to listen to Charlie's music. He wasn't there to learn about the family. He wanted to get in and get out and get on with business. So after the audition, Charlie was like, oh, I nailed it. And he expected an immediate contract offer which Terry did not give him. He didn't shut him down right away. He was a nice guy. He was just kind of noncommittal. He was polite. And he he told Charlie about a guy named Mike Deasy. Mike Deasy was a session guitarist. And he, he, I guess he had a, like a recording studio set up in his van. And he liked recording Indian tribal music. He just had like very niche, right? So Terry's like, I think Mike Deasy might like you. I will, I will come back with him. He might be interested in what you're doing. And before he left, he gave Charlie $50 for whatever the family might need, like food, because during Charlie's whole attempt at philosophical conversation with Terry, he mentioned that the family ate from dumpsters and that bothered Terry. Remember, Terry is Doris Day's son. He was raised with money and never went without. And he was like, that bothers me. I don't like that. So he gave him 50 bucks and he was nice. He left, but Charlie, as crazy as he was, he still got the vibe that Terry was going to pass on him. But he was like, 
I can't just tell the family that he's going to let me down and that he's going to pass on, pass on this grass because I'm amazing and they're following me and they need to know that I've got this in the back. So he came up with something quick. He was like, yep. He walks. I, I, this is how I imagine it. He strides in with his nose up and all cool and collected and the family's all sitting there with, you know, rubbing their hands together with nervous energy. And they're like, so what did he say? And Charlie gives kind of a little smirk and he goes, he gave me money. And he insinuated that it was a signing bonus. Yeah, he gave me some money. Uh, I turned down the chance to sign a contract, though, because I don't believe in written contracts. You guys know me. My word is my bond. And so they're like, oh, this is great. Oh, my God. Congratulations, Charlie. And as for Terry, he's leaving there. He's walking away from the ranch. And he's like, "There, this guy has nothing to offer. He was just like the rest of all the starving artists on Sunset Boulevard. They all looked the same. They dressed the same. They talked and sang about the same exact things. And Charlie was no different. It was all like they were all copying the Beatles, kind of. But Terry, being a nice guy, he did talk to Mike Deasy. And they agreed that they would go to the ranch and meet up with Charlie and follow through on that whole thing. And Greg Jacobson decided that he was going to tag along. So on June 6th, they all went and poor Mike Deasy, (laughs) I'm sure he regrets going. It was a terrible time. Somebody, I don't know if they were trying to be, you know, show a little hospitality and be the hostess with the mostest, but they slipped him some LSD and he had a really, really bad trip. And so Terry and Greg are like, we got to get him home. So they're guiding him to the car and Charlie's walking, hopefully, alongside him like a puppy, begging for a treat. Like, so? And they're like, we'll let you know. Well, a few days later, Terry got back to him, let him down gently. Like, "Uh, it's just, I don't, I wouldn't know what to do with you. You're very talented, but I just don't know. So he let him down and Charlie knew that was it. His shot was over. That was it for him. Meanwhile, the family's wondering when he's going to cut his first album with Columbia. They have no idea. As far as they know, Charlie told him that he had a record deal and everything went great. So Charlie's got to think of an excuse fast, right? So he tells them that he puts it on Terry. He's like, oh yeah, Terry ripped the rug out from under me. He backpedaled on on the contract that he promised me. He is not to be trusted. He betrayed me. Just like those in the Bible who betrayed Jesus. This is exactly the same. And this is another sign that the prophecies in the book of Revelation and the White Album songs, the songs on the White Album, are coming true. You guys, Helter Skelter is coming and it's coming fast. He just wove together the most insane ideas and they ate it up. They believed him. And I mean, even if they didn't believe them, believe him, they kind of had to believe him because... What other choice did they have? They were stuck with this guy. They gave up everything for this guy. He was their leader. So they believed him. But they did notice that after Terry's rejection, because Terry Melcher was like, he was really holding out for a contract. And he was going to get that from Terry Melcher. So after that went to crap, 
Charlie just, he didn't even pretend to be peaceful and happy and whatever anymore. He was mad and angry all the time. And so after this, the family's whole approach to Helter Skelter kind of turned dark and sinister. And remember the creepy crawling thing that they would do? They would go out at night and break into people's houses and it wouldn't really, it was more of like a mind game. They wouldn't steal anything. They wouldn't hurt anybody. They would just kind of mess with people. Well, that whole game turned into them start stealing things from people's properties. And they did end up finding out where Terry Melcher moved to from CLO. And so they're like, we're going to show him. And they went to his house and they stole a telescope right off off his porch from him as a message. They did it as a message. And it just didn't work because Terry's like, I mean... It's probably just, I mean, the telescope was sitting out there. It's probably just some run-of-the-mill thief. Like, he never considered that it was the family. So, they showed him. After a while, the family was starting to get really restless. They were losing hope. Nothing was going right. And Charlie knew that he needed to get them back to Death Valley, to Barker Ranch, because they were starting to kind of, you know stray a little bit and ask questions and he couldn't be having that but in order to get back to Barker Ranch he had to get money together so he decided to call up a girl named Luella Luella was the girl that Tex had lived with when he went AWOL and she she was a dealer she was a drug dealer and Charlie had Tex call her up and tell her that they had 25 kilos of prime weed and Luella was like, that sounds great. I will bring a buyer. They'll put up 2500 in advance. And they had it all worked out. What Luella didn't know was Charlie's plan was to take the money and run. There was no 25 kilos. But it all went wrong. Luella shows up with her buyer. And he's this huge dude named Lots of Papa. Lots of Papa gave Tex the money. $2,500. And he informed him that he was going to keep Luella, him and his people, his guys, were going to keep Luella until they got their weed in hand. And he told him in graphic detail what would happen to Luella if they stiffed him on this weed. And so Tex is like, yeah, that sounds great. So he takes the money. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about Luella. Takes the money, takes it to Charlie. And after, I mean, not too long, Lots of Papa caught wind that he was not going to get his delivery. And so he called and talked to, to Charlie directly to threaten him. And from what I understand, this wasn't true, but Lots of Papa told him that he was a member of the Black Panthers. He wasn't. He was just saying that. And he's like, I'm going to gather up some of my Black Panther friends and we are all going to come to the ranch and we're going to kill everybody on the ranch. And Charlie believed it. He was like, oh boy. So he took this threat seriously. And he was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do now? Like this is Charlie's whole life, just digging himself into holes, trying to find a way out because giving the money back was not an option. He had to get his family out to Death Valley. So he wasn't going to do that. So Charlie decided that he was going to beat lots of Papa to the punch. So Charlie and one of his followers met arranged to meet Lots of Papa at his apartment. 
And I I don't know if it was just under the guise that they were going to talk it out or if he was getting his weed or what. But uh, what the plan was, was that Charlie, who, you know, he wanted to keep his hands clean. He had his followers do his dirty work. So the plan was to show up to Lots of Papa's place and the follower, whoever was with him, with Charlie, was going to shoot Lots of Papa and kill him. Well, it didn't quite go as planned. The follower choked and he didn't do it. So Charlie had to do it. He's like, why do I have to do everything around here? And he shot Lot's Papa and killed him. And when he got back to the ranch, he bragged to the family about it. He wasn't trying to keep it quiet. He was so proud of himself. But, you know, now all of them are on high alert because they knew they just started a war. Like these guys, they're in the drug business. You just don't want to mess with that. And they just did. And so some of the family fled. They're like, we're done here. We're not staying. We're done. We don't want to be part of the family anymore. And so Charlie's like, well, we, okay, but we need to replenish. So they went out looking for more people and they found Linda Kasabian. And Linda was in a weird spot in her life. She had tried reconciling. She got divorced. Were they separated? I think they're divorced and you know moved on from her marriage she had a baby uh it was just her and her baby who left this marriage and they decided that they're going to try to reconcile but it just wasn't going well and she felt stuck she felt like she didn't really have any options and then the Manson family presented itself and she's like oh okay maybe this is fate maybe this is what I'm supposed to do So she starts hanging out with them and she fell hard for Tex and she's like, you know what? I am going to join the family. So she did. And in an attempt to impress them, because, you know, you can't just come into this established family with nothing. She stole $5,000 from her ex-husband and gave it to the family. So it's her. She brought her daughter, her baby daughter, and the two of them joined the family. And when she got there, her daughter, Tanya, was whisked off to be with the other kids. And Linda was led to the main house with the adults. Meanwhile, Charlie's just fixated on getting more money to get the family out to Barker Ranch so that he can keep control over them. Because remember when they went to Barker Ranch, like Death Valley, there's nothing out there. There's, they can't escape. Like, it's just a... A manipulation power move for him around this time his old friend who they were friends like Gary Hinman was a friend of the family's he was a music teacher he dealt drugs sometimes well he had sold Bobby Beausoleil a thousand tabs of mescaline for a thousand a thousand bucks and the family sold their tabs the tabs I think to the straight satans the motorcycle group But they were coming back with complaints and they're like, we want our money back. So they're in, they're in a situation. So Bobby resolved that he would just go to Gary Hinman and just ask for their money back. You know, they're friends. He'll understand. We'll just get it worked out that way. So Bobby and Susan Atkins went together to, to Gary Hinman's house. And while they were there, Gary refused to give the money back. He's like, "They're these drugs aren't bad. Like, I'm not giving you your money back. And things got violent. 
And so after a little while, like they're kind of torturing him. So Gary finally was like, listen, fine. I will give you the pink slips to my two cars. Okay. I, 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 I'm not going to give you the money. You can have my cars. So Bobby's like, okay. He was satisfied with that, but he still had to consider Charlie's financial needs. And so he called Charlie at the ranch. He filled him in on what happened. And Charlie's like, "Uh uh-uh. I know Gary has money. He's planning a trip to Japan. I know he's sitting on some money and we need it. So Charlie drove over himself and threatened Gary. And then he headed back to the ranch and he left Bobby and Susan and Mary Bruner was there at some point. I don't know if she came with Charlie or what, but she was there now. And he's like, beat him and torture him and do whatever you need to until he relents because we need money. But Gary wouldn't, like he insisted, he did not have money to give them. At one point, Gary threatened to call the police and Charlie, like this is a thing that Charlie could not allow because that would probably lead back to his murder of lots of Papa. So in the whole Manson family story, this is where it gets very like domino effecty, butterfly, butterfly effect, domino. I don't know. It's just like one thing after another and it gets so tangled and Charlie keeps making stupid decisions. And anyway, so instead of just letting Gary go and leaving him alone, they killed him. Charlie's like, Gary has to die. So he ordered Bobby to kill him. He wanted him to leave evidence that this murder was, had been committed by the Black Panthers. And, you know, that way this would set police onto their trail away from them. And it would advance Charlie's narrative to the family. So Bobby did it. He stabbed Gary Hinman and left him dead. After he stabbed him, he dipped his hand into Gary's blood and he made this paw print on the wall, which was the symbol for the Black Panthers. And then next to it, in blood, he wrote political piggy. Once they were all said and done, Bobby, Susan, and Mary tried to run around the scene and clean up any evidence that it was them that had been there, tried to wipe out fingerprints the best they could. They missed a few, but... They did their best, and then they went back to the ranch, and they bragged about what they'd done. But this didn't make Charlie feel any better. Like, the weight of the world is on him at this point, because his family's counting on him. He's trying to get money so that he can get them out to Death Valley. Now he's got two murders on him, and it's not on his conscience, because he doesn't care, right? He just doesn't want to get caught. And on top of that, he promised the family that Helter Skelter would begin that summer and it still hadn't and summer was almost over he could not lose the trust of his followers and he still didn't have enough money for death valley so now what right and now there are two murders waiting to be traced back to him it was just all very stressful well bobby couldn't handle the pressure and he went on the run with gary hinman's fiat an apb had been issued on the fiat and It wasn't a very reliable vehicle. I don't know if Gary didn't take care of it or what, but it broke down on the highway. So two highway patrolmen came over to see, you know, what's up? Are you okay? Is your car broken down? They run the plate and then obviously made the connection because of the APB that was put out. And so 
they, I mean, they found evidence right then and there. I think the knife he used to kill Gary was in the wheel, like behind the hubcap. Just a few things to, to raise suspicion. So Bobby was arrested. And after Charlie found out about the arrest, he's like, oh, I got to I got to get him out because he could start talking like this could look bad for me. So he's trying to come up with ideas of what to do. And one of those ideas was the idea of a copycat murder. And he talked to the family a little bit about it. And they thought, yeah, that's probably what's going to be best. Because this way, the police would think that whoever killed Gary was still out there committing more crimes. And that it couldn't be, it couldn't be Bobby because he's in jail. So how is he still committing these crimes, right? Police will totally believe that. Right on the heels of this, he, Charlie, got word that Sandy and Mary had been arrested for using stolen credit cards. So now he's like, oh, now I gotta get money together for bail money. And on top of that, he had to get Helter Skelter going. It was just all very stressful, my friends. So he turned to his right-hand man, Tex, and he's like, listen, bud, I need you to be in charge of these copycat killings, okay? I don't care who it is. You choose somebody. It's up to you whoever you want to kill, but it needs to be somebody important, like a celebrity, somebody who's going to catch headlines and get lots of publicity, okay? Because then police will see those headlines and think that Gary's killers are still out there, okay? So Tex, quote unquote, arrived at the decision himself that whoever lived in Terry Melcher's old place was probably somebody important if they could afford a house like that. There was a young guy named William Gerritsen who was staying in the guest cottage at Cielo. Remember the the house on property where the owner lived, Rudy Altabelli. Well, Rudy was out of town. So William Gerritsen was taking care of his dogs and holding, holding down the fort for Rudy. Meanwhile, Tex, Susan, Pat, so it's Tex, Susan, Atkins, Pat Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian. They're all preparing to attack whoever's at Cielo. They don't know who lives there. They just know that they must be important if they can afford this house. Tex really was the only one who knew that they're going to be killing somebody. They, The women are just kind of blindly following what he says. They just thought they're going to somebody's house, I guess, or maybe creepy crawling. So they drive to the house and it's pretty late. It's after, I want to say it's like 11, maybe midnight, they drive to the house and they hop the fence. And the first thing they do is they cut the phone wires to the house. Then once they're on the property, Tex told the women that they were going to go into the main house and kill everyone inside. That was the first time they'd heard of it. And sadly, there had been an innocent bystander. He was young. He was, I think off the top of my head, I think he was like 18. His name was Steve Parent, and he stopped by to visit William Gerritsen, the caretaker of Cottage that night. And as he was leaving, it was just like wrong place, wrong time. As he was leaving, Tex approached him, and he shot him four times and left him dead. And Tex put his car into neutral and pushed it down the driveway and just parked the car there and then went on with business. It, the house was in a canyon, like the acoustics were kind of weird, I guess. 
So nobody heard the gunshots. Like the people inside the house didn't hear anything. Gerritsen didn't hear anything. And inside the main house was Abigail Folger. She was reading a book in the guest bedroom. And then her boyfriend, Wojtek, I don't know how to say his name, Wojtek Frakowski, he was asleep on the couch in the living room. And then Sharon Tate and J.C. Breen. So just a reminder, Sharon Tate is married to Roman Polanski. She's like eight months pregnant. These are her friends who are staying there with her because Roman is out of town. And J.C. Breen was her hairdresser slash ex-lover, but they're like best friends, whatever. So they're sitting in the master bedroom talking. And at about midnight, the family members text Susan and Pat. I don't think Linda was with them. I think she was keeping watch. They found an, a window that was open. So they there's a screen on it. They sliced the screen open and they climbed through the window. And text just kind of stood over Frakowski who's sleeping on the couch and the girls did a walk through through the house just did just a scan see who was in there I think it was Susan found Abigail in the bedroom where she was reading and Abigail just kind of looked up and smiled at her she didn't think anything of somebody she didn't know being there it wasn't her house Sharon was very social but it quickly became clear what was happening Abigail Sharon and Jay were all forced into the living room where Frakowski was and they were all tied up and Jay was like go easy on her she's pregnant like he protested and pointed out Sharon's pregnancy so Tex's response to that was just to shoot him right in the stomach he was still alive though so he's on the floor bleeding out of his stomach and Tex demanded all their money because you know they need money so Abigail's like I have some in my room so Tex sent one of the girls to go get that money and they came back and it was 70 bucks. And Tex is like, are you freaking kidding me? Aren't you a Folger, like the Folger lady? This is all you have? And he was, he was furious. And then there's poor Jay who's bleeding out on the floor and he's groaning. And Tex stabbed him until he was dead. After that, you know, I'm sure they're screaming and panicking. And one of the women, Sharon or Abigail, asked what he was going to do with them. And Tex told them, you're all going to die. So Verkowski hears this and he starts trying to struggle himself free from the couch. He's all tied up. And Tex is like, Susan, kill him. But before Susan could get to him, he got himself free. And him and Susan were kind of wrestling and it was like this whole thing. And Susan's got a knife and she's just blindly stabbing into him. And it was mostly his legs that she got before she just totally lost her knife. Pat was holding Abigail at knife point and Abigail and Sharon, they're just watching helplessly. There's nothing they can do. Poor Frankowski. It was like, it sounded like a pretty long, scary death for him. He gets away from Susan, who had been stabbing him, runs out onto the front lawn, and Tex shot him a couple times, and then leaped onto him and stabbed him until he finally died on the front lawn. Abigail was able to break away from Pat, and she ran out onto the lawn, because that's her man, okay? But Pat tackled her, and she stabbed her. So there's two down on the lawn, and Tex was like, I'll make sure he's dead. Pat, you go check the back house. Kill whoever's in there. 
poor William Gerritsen, he doesn't know anything that's going on. He doesn't live there. He's just trying to do his job, mind his own business. And luckily, Pat was, she walked, she went back because she was afraid to disobey texts, but she was also very afraid to follow this order. She didn't want to kill anybody else. So she just kind of walked back and lingered for a second and made it seem like she checked the house, but she, she didn't. And she came back up and told Tex that nobody was there. And luckily he believed her. So Garrett Garrettson like didn't get hurt. He was fine. Nobody touched him or harmed him. So after this, Tex turns his attention to Abigail. He stabs her a few more times. Like she's struggling. And she allegedly she said to him, I give up, you've got me. So there goes Abigail. And so now it's just Sharon Tate that's left. So when they went back into the house and found Sharon, she was just pleading for herself, for her unborn baby. She's like, please, please, you can take me with you. Just please let me have this baby first. Please spare my baby's life. You can kill me after I have the baby. Just please. But they didn't care. So Susan grabbed her and held her and Tex stabbed her. And as she was dying, Sharon was sobbing for her mom. I don't know how you do that to somebody. After all was said and done, they were like, all right, let's survey this crime scene. They were careful not to leave fingerprints. And before they left, Charlie had told them to write something quote unquote witchy in blood that would look like evidence that the people who had killed Gary Hinman were the ones who did this too. So Susan, she's like, ew, I don't want to touch the blood. So she dips a towel in Sharon's blood and she wrote pig on the outside of the, of the front door. And then that was that. And they all started walking back to the car where Linda had been. She wasn't involved. Like she was just in, in the truck keeping watch, I guess. And they all got in and they headed back for Spawn Ranch. And on their way there, they were throwing their weapons out and bloody clothes out the, oh, the windows down like a steep slope. And when they got back to the ranch, they reported to Charlie and Charlie's like, okay, well, I need to go check out the scene for myself. So he wanted to make sure that everything was done just the way he wanted it to be done. So he moved a couple things around, went home and went to sleep. A few hours later at 8 a.m., Winifred Chapman, who was the housekeeper for Sharon Tate and like just Cielo, the house on Cielo. She was the first to stumble upon the crime scene. Just totally, I'm sure, totally unaware. Was not expecting that. So she calls the police. She's screaming. And officers Jerry Joe DeRosa and William Weisenhunt were the first officers onto the scene. And then followed by Robert Burbridge, who showed up a little bit later. So initially they found two bodies on the lawn. There were two inside. And... They went to check out the guest cottage, and they found Gerritsen unharmed. He seemed a little incoherent. incoherent. They figured he was on drugs, so they haul him outside past the bodies, and Gerritsen, he's like, I don't know what's going on. I was in the cottage all night. I didn't see or hear anything, but they didn't believe him. They read him his rights, and they arrested him for murder. By noon, Roman Polanski's agent, uh, William Tennant was his name. He got there and he identified everybody except for the kid in the car, Steve Parent. 
he was the one who they had shot first and just left there. So they start going through the house and in their search, police found a bunch of weed, some MDA, and they thought that maybe this was some drug connection that had gone wrong. But as of now, Gerritsen was still the prime suspect. Back at the ranch, the family was watching all, everything all unfold on the news. What the police had found, what they thought, their theory, all of it. The, the ones who were involved were so proud of themselves. They just thought they were so cool that they got to be part of this. And Charlie was still snoozing, you know, big night. So he wakes up late. But when he did, he realized that there was no mention of the Black Panthers. This actress who they had just killed, she was being broadcast all over the news. Yet they were still no closer to freeing Bobby and they were no closer to Helter Skelter. So tonight they would go out and do it all again. Except this time, Charlie was going to come with them to show them how it's supposed to be done. Charlie never had the intention of doing the dirty work himself, okay? He was just there to micromanage. Isn't he just the worst kind of person? Like, you think he couldn't get any worse and then you find out he's a micromanager. This crew tonight was Linda, Tex, Pat, Susan, they were all there the night before, and then Leslie Van Houten and Clem. They all piled into the car and Linda was behind the driver's wheel and she just started kind of aimlessly drive down residential streets and just Charlie was all scattered and giving her directions but they weren't they just she was trying to keep up with whatever he was doing. Leno and Rosemary LaBianca were a couple and they were upper middle class. Um, Leno ran a chain of grocery stores and Rosemary was the co-owner of a, a boutique and their kids were raised. They lived in a comfortable home on Waverly Drive in the Los Feliz neighborhood of LA. And it was a nice area. It was nice upscale, nice houses. And they had just gotten home from picking up their boat from Lake Isabella. Rosemary's son, Frank. Frank was Rosemary's son from a previous marriage. So Leno's stepson, right? So he used their boat for the weekend. They went to go pick it up. He was supposed to come home with them, but decided to stay a little longer. It was really late. It was like 1 a.m. And before they got home, they had to stop to drop their daughter, Susanna, off at her home. And then they headed to their house and they stopped off so Leno, Leno could pick up a newspaper. Like that was his thing. He liked reading the paper before bed. And they learned all about the Cielo killings. They hadn't learned or heard about it until that night. So they get home and Rosemary's getting ready for bed. Leno is like, oh, I can sleep in tomorrow. I'm just going to stay up and read this paper. So he lays down on the couch. He's reading the paper. And meanwhile, the Manson family, who has been driving aimlessly for however long through these residential neighborhoods, starts driving up and down Waverly Drive. They had partied at a guy named Harold True's house on this street before, and they knew he didn't live here anymore, but Charlie had Linda park by his house. So she does. Charlie gets out of the car, and he starts walking up the long driveway of this house right next to Harold True's. And when he came back down, he had Tex bring their, like, a gun and a knife and come with him. So the two of them walk up, and they see a sleeping man on the couch. He's got a newspaper over his face, 
and they go inside, and Lena was awoken with the barrel of a gun poking into him. How horrifying. So he's obviously startled and confused, and they're like, this is a robbery. Roll over on your stomach. So he does it, and they tie him up, and they ask him who else is in the house. And he's like, my wife! My wife is in the bedroom! I can't say what I would do in that situation, but I, I don't know that I would throw my spouse under the bus like that. But you know what? I'm not Leno LaBianca. So Charlie goes in into the room. He pulls Rosemary out to the living room and they're like, where's your cash? So they go, they get whatever cash and valuables they can. And then Charlie went to go get Pat and Leslie from the car. And Linda, Clem, and Susan were still in the car. They didn't come in. I don't know what Charlie's grand scheme was here, but Charlie got into the driver's seat and drove away with the three of them. So inside the LaBianca home, you've got Tex, Pat, and Leslie. And they are putting pillowcases over Leno and Rosemary's head, tying them off with like lamp cords. And so they can't see anything. And Tex starts stabbing Leno in the throat until he decides that he's good and dead. And Rosemary can't see what's going on. She can just hear it. And she's screaming and she's asking what they're doing to her husband. And so Rosemary's next. Pat and Tex took turns stabbing Rosemary until she was dead. And then there's Leslie who's like, I don't know about this. And she's hiding out in the hallway. And Pat thought Leno was dead, but he wasn't. He was still alive. So Tex goes over and stabs him until he is dead. And then one or the other, it's not clear who, but one of them carved the word war onto his stomach. And Leslie, because Charlie instructed them, he's like, make sure everybody does something on his way out. So Leslie, who hadn't done anything really, is standing in the hallway and Tex is like, Leslie, get over here. And he orders her to just do something to Rosemary, like desecrate Rosemary's body, do something to her. So she's like, okay. And she grabs the knife and she stabs Rosemary, who's already dead, in the legs and the butt. And she's like, is this good enough? Horrible. So after they're dead, they turn their attention to the crime scene now. And because the whole thing, right, was to set police onto the Black Panther's trail. So they stole what they wanted out of the house. And then in blood, they wrote the words rise and death to pigs on the walls. And then Pat kind of last minute added onto the fridge, I believe, a misspelled version of Helter Skelter in blood. And Helter, the misspelling was Helter. It was H-E-A-L-T-E-R. Charlie, when he left, he had taken Rosemary's wallet because he's trying to think ahead here. And he's like, okay, I'm going to take this. I'm going to drop it off in a black neighborhood so that, you know, the cops will think it was these guys. This will like feed into his helter skelter thing. So, but instead, for whatever reason, he pulled into a gas station. He had Linda go into the bathroom of the gas station and put the wallet into the back of a toilet tank. And then they all went home and they rested and they went to bed and they slept and enjoyed their night. And the next morning was Sunday and the headlines were all about the ritualistic slayings in the area. So now Charlie's like, oh, this is not going how I planned. Why are they not connecting the dots here? This was the Black Panthers. Come on. But that's not what 
the media was presenting. That's not what, it just wasn't working out how he thought. So now Charlie's just left to wallow in suspense while the police were making their connections and working and trying to solve these cases. And on the police's end, on detectives' end, they were becoming more convinced that this was a drug connection gone wrong. Like they were all connected and it was probably something, something to do with drugs. And now it's like ritualistic and nothing to do with black Panthers. Gerritsen was finally given a polygraph test and he was ultimately eliminated as a suspect. So he's free to go. Detectives and investigators are trying to figure this whole thing out. And meanwhile, Charlie's telling the family to refocus on preparing for their move back to Barker Ranch in Death Valley. He's like, we got to get to the bottomless pit. Once we get there, we will be safe from the cops. We'll be safe from pursuit. So back at the LaBianca residence, it was about 8.30 that night, Sunday night. And Frank Struthers, Rosemary's son, got home to the LaBianca home. And he noticed when he got there that all the window shades were pulled down and that the boat was not in the garage. And that was unusual. So he's kind of on edge, like... What's going on here? This isn't normal. So instead of going into the house, he decides he's going to knock and he doesn't get any response. So he goes to find a payphone to call his sister and his sister and her boyfriend, Joe Dorgan. They met up with Frank and they all went together into the house and Suzanne stayed in the kitchen while the guys walked through the house and they found Leno's body on the floor. They were obviously shocked and panicked, but they kept their cool enough for Suzanne. And they said, they just told her that they needed to leave the house right away. So they leave, they go to the neighbors, they call the police and the police got there just a little after 10, 1030. They find Leno in the living room. Rosemary was in the bedroom. By Monday, word was out about this new quote unquote ritualistic slaying and now LA residents are terrified because they're they're like something's going on here it sounds like it's the same people what if we're next so everybody's scared and Charlie is realizing that his plot had failed when police and media just never considered that the murders might be racially motivated you know he's got to put a positive spin on it silver lining he used these headlines to preach to the family that Helter Skelter had started and they needed to get out of town because this was the apocalypse. So Charlie sent a few members off to Death Valley first. He wanted to especially get Tex away from Spawn because he's in the center of all of this, right? Just in case FBI starts showing up and looking for him. Then on August 16th, so this was about a week after the tape murders, Everybody at the ranch was woken up by a raid. Everybody there was arrested, but they still hadn't found Charlie. He, they didn't know much about this family. They just had heard they're just kind of troublemakers. They stole and things like that. So they decided to do a raid. They're looking for Charlie, this ringleader guy. And they finally did find him. He was hiding out under one of the movie set buildings He was informed that he and his followers were under arrest for auto theft. Unfortunately, this did not stick because the search warrant was supposed to be done a few days before. And for some reason, it got changed, except the warrant didn't get changed. Like the written out warrant 
still had the wrong date on it. Within two days, all the charges were dropped and they were set free. And this is unfortunate for Shorty Shea. I think I mentioned him before. He was a ranch hand for George Spawn. And he, they didn't like Shorty Shea because Shorty Shea didn't really like them. He didn't think that he, they should be taking advantage of Spawn Ranch and all that. So Shorty was kind of trying to, he was insisting that George Spawn either evict the family or sell the land to developers and, and kind of pull the land out from under the family. And Charlie didn't like this. And it suspected that him and some other family members killed Shorty. Like he got into a car with them and then he was never seen again. And when Charlie was asked about it, he said that he went, went, heard he went to San Francisco or something, but nobody ever saw him again. So you can do the math there. So during the raid, Charlie lost all the vehicles that he had been collecting, the cars, trucks, whatever, and the dune buggies that were meant to get the family out to Barker Ranch. So this is, you know, this is a setback. But by the first week of September, Charlie's like, I can't, we can't wait anymore. I have to get everybody back out to, to Death Valley. So the family stole a few cars and off they went to the desert. Not everybody in the family knew exactly what had happened or what was really going on. But they were unsettled by the way Charlie bragged about it all. They weren't about that, but they also felt stuck because they were in the middle of the desert. And even if they did find a way to leave, Charlie seemed to know where to find them. Always. Like they just couldn't get out from under his thumb. But after a few weeks in the desert, their supplies started running out. The family started asking questions like, you know, why hasn't Helter Skelter happened, Charlie? Well, Charlie's under a lot of pressure here, but he always found a way to get out from under it. On October 10th, Barker Ranch was raided and they found stolen vehicles. The babies that were with them were taken into custody. Two of the women admitted to these officials that they were part of the family, but they wanted out. They were disgusted. They didn't want anything to do with them anymore. So those two women were taken into protective custody, and the others were arrested. And so Charlie, at this point, was back at Spawn Ranch. So somebody called him and told him what ha- what happened, and Charlie was like, all right, I got to get back out there. So after the raid, he goes back out there. I don't know if the stress just got to him or what, because that wasn't the smartest idea for himself. Police had decided that since they didn't have Charlie yet, they should go back to Barker Ranch again and do another raid. So they showed up two days later and they arrested a few more members and they found Charlie like hiding in the house. And he was all polite, like all the way up until his arrest. He was polite and charming. And it's just kind of weird. It's like when you hear happy music in a horror movie. It's just off-putting and unsettling. So they got him. And they also had no idea that these guys were the ones who committed the murders. They were charged with grand theft auto and arson. There was, like, there was no suspicion that they had committed these murders. And Kitty Ludesinger, who was Bobby Bosley's girlfriend, she was one of the women who left the family to be put into protective custody and she told them everything that she knew and this kept Charlie in custody and during their questioning and just trying to figure things out the detectives kept circling back to something that Kitty had said that stood out to them about Gary Himmons murder she swore 
that Susan Atkins had told her something about stabbing a man in the legs, but they knew Gary had only been stabbed in the chest. But then they recalled the Tate murders, and they knew that a man at the house had been stabbed in the legs. So they're like connecting dots here, right? Well, while Susan was in jail, she was bunked near these two women named Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham, who were old pals from their prostitution days. It was November at this point, and during casual conversation, Virginia asked Susan what she was in for. And Susan's like, oh, first-degree murder. And over time, you know, over the next few days, she started to open up a little more and a little more, and she told them everything. She told them that the victim was somebody named Gary Hinman, and that she and Bobby Beausoleil and another girl were the ones to kill him. And she went on and on about Charlie and all the juicy details about what happened and how she thought the cops were dumb and they would never figure it out. And Virginia is fine. Like her opinion has been formed about Susan and Susan is out of her mind. When the detectives had gone through the family's personal effects, they noticed that Charlie's deerskin pants were fastened together with leather thongs that looked just like the ones that were used to tie Leno LaBianca's wrists together. So things are starting to unravel here. There's another guy named Al Springer. He came forward with info. I think he was part of the straight Satans. He had a lot of info. And soon the Tate and LaBianca detectives were working together. During her conversations with Ronnie, Susan had told her that she thought Charlie and the family would were planning to kill more people and so ronnie is finally like you know she's disturbed so she's like i i need to come forward like i need to talk to somebody about all this virginia graham ronnie's friend slash neighboring bunkmate to susan she had been moved to a different facility and she on her own separately decided that she was going to come forward too so between ronnie virginia and a guy named danny de carlo who was a member of the straight satans i think he was their treasurer investigators learned a ton about what what happened to carlo he he had some charges pressed against him so he was in trouble but he knew stuff about what about these murders and he didn't want to testify against the family because he knew it was too dangerous but he agreed to testify against bobby Beausoleil in exchange for the charges against him to be dropped and so he did he testified against bobby but that trial ended with a hung jury. Everything for Charlie was unraveling quickly. The wallet, the bloody clothes, the weapons, all sorts of evidence were found. And on December 9th, Charlie was formally charged in Inyo County Court with the murders of seven people. And he was extradited to the ninth floor jail at downtown's, downtown LA's Hall of Justice. And Charlie was officially famous. How great for him. He was all over the media. There was even a black market for Manson memorabilia. Already. Like, if I mean, it's weird to do it anyway, but they got that up and running quick. Charlie started receiving hundreds of letters a day in jail. And some were from people who were disgusted by him. Some people wanted autographs and others were from teenage girls who wanted to join the family. On December 11th, he was arraigned, and he seemed to just relish in the crowd and the attention. He loved it. Over the next six weeks, 139 attorneys visited him, hoping that they could gain his business, and the attorney 
who ended up on his case was Irving Allen Canaric, Canaric, defending Charlie. And Vincent Biliosi was the prosecutor on the case. There is a lot of detail on the trial and everything that went down in the courtroom that I'm not going to get into. In a nutshell, to cut to the chase, Charlie, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten were found guilty of the Tate and LaBianca murders, and they were sentenced to death. Bobby Beausoleil ultimately confessed to killing Gary Hinman, and he was found guilty April 18, 1970, and he was also sentenced to death. But in 1972, the California Supreme Court abolished the death penalty, so their, all of their sentences were reduced to life in prison. Charlie was held at Corcoran Prison in Kings County, California, until November 19, 2017, when he died at 83 years old in a hospital. He died in the hospital from complications brought on by colon cancer. Susan Atkins died at the age of 61 in prison on September 24, 2009, and her cause of death, I'm not sure exactly what it was. I didn't dig too hard, but it was listed as natural causes. And then Tex Watson is now 77 years old. He is incarcerated at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. Patricia Krenwinkel, who's now 75, is incarcerated at the California Institution for Women in Corona, California. Leslie Van Houten, who is now 73, is also incarcerated there. And then Bobby Beausoleil, he's 75 now, and he's incarcerated at California Medical Facility in Vacaville. So, like I said, there's so much information that you can find about Charlie Manson, about his father, the Manson family, about their lives, like their offspring, their families. There's so much information out there. It's way too much to cover, but it's very interesting. So if you want more information, you can check out the book that I got a lot of my information from. My primary source for this series was from a book called The Life and Times of Charles Manson by Jeff Gwynn. It's a very, very detailed book if you want to get into it. There's tons of websites. I will list the websites that I got info from in the show notes. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being on this four-part journey with me. I will see you next time with a brand new story. Take care of yourselves. Bye.